when people look at me, they're not thinking, oh yeah, that girl is definitely a composer. Yeah, she is what I had in my mind when I was thinking classical composer. Hello and welcome to Underscore, where we explore the innovative music of artists who create beyond the boundaries of classical. I'm Thomas. I'm Prasanthi. And this is the classically trained, but genre omnivorous, musical world we live in that we want to share with you. Each week, a new guest pulls us into their orbit to explore their creative process, their music, and their story. We dig into their inspirations, habits, and how they function as artists living in the 21st century. Then, at the end, Thomas and I leave you with Old, New, Borrowed, and Blue, our current musical obsessions for you to check out. Today, we are honored to introduce you to a groundbreaking composer who wants to give classical music an image makeover. Rina Esmail is known for her signature blend of Indian and Western classical music. She is extremely passionate about bringing communities together, particularly communities that wouldn't normally interact with each other. That may sound like a lofty goal, but Rina is actually doing it, and we're going to talk more about that later. This incredible artist has a resume that would shock most people once they realize how young she is. Rina has worked with Kronos Quartet, Albany Symphony, American Composers Orchestra, and Salasina Music Society. She's been a Fulbright Scholar, an Inc. Fellow, and even spoken at a TED conference. On top of that, she holds degrees from Juilliard and Yale. She's awesome. But as you'll hear, Rena's music and effervescent personality speak for themselves. In today's short time, we're going to explore a few of her most interesting works, learn about the piece she wrote for a college glee club, I'm going to ask her why she wrote an article about a washing machine, and Rena's even going to treat us to a live performance of some Indian classical singing. We are currently listening to her string quartet, Ragamala, as we welcome her in. Irina, after so many years of being your faraway fan, I am tickled to be talking to you right now. It's amazing to be here. The piece we were just listening to is your string quartet, which seems pretty representative of your signature blend of Hindustani and Western classical music. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. It's um, It uses um, rags, which are kind of Indian scales, um, but then it also uses the string quartet, which is like kind of the classic Western chamber music medium, and blends them together into something that just takes everything I love from both musical cultures. That's awesome. It's really beautiful and a beautiful representation of your genre. So you mentioned rag. I've heard you define a rag as a scale with personality. Yes, very much. Um, So we will probably be using this term several times during today's interview. So I just wanted to get that word out there, rag. If you hear it, listeners, that's what it means. Let's also get another term out of the way. What do you think, Thomas? Yeah, Hindustani. Yes. So... Hindustani music is one of two um, Indian classical traditions. Um, these aren't folk traditions. These are traditions where um, people study the exact same way that you would in, in Western classical music. For many years, they train with a guru. Um, and there are there's the North Indian tradition, which is Hindustani, and then the South Indian tradition, which is Carnatic. So the, the one that I follow is Hindustani. Let's throw it back to yeah. 
you and how you became who you are and your training. It's a fun fact that me and Rena went to the same high school yeah. here in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. So what, what brought you to here and, and the music you're making today? I started out in music, um, in Western classical music, wanting to be a pianist. I think when I was young, you know, people often ask me, like, you know, you were Indian. You came from an Indian family. I'm still Indian, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so why didn't you study Indian classical music right away? And the, the answer to that is really interesting. You know, even though I, I came from a family of, you know, my parents were both from India, um, I didn't come from the Hindu tradition. And that's where, in the same way that Western classical music um, is, uh, comes out of Christianity, you know, um, Hindustani classical music comes out of Hinduism. And so I really wasn't exposed to that kind of music and my parents weren't necessarily either. My mom is from a part of India called Goa. And so when um, she was raised as a, a child, she uh, started listening to Western classical music because that was a part of India that was colonized by Portugal. And so um, their family was always really into Western music. So when I was young and started just trying to find my way in music and my parents saw that I was musically talented, Immediately, I got put into, you know, guitar lessons, violin lessons, piano lessons. And I really, really seriously wanted to be a pianist. That was something I cared so much about. Um, but um, as the years went on, I realized that, you know, I am someone who has incredible stage fright. And not as much, you know, speaking or whatever, but playing the piano, I would just, you know, have these blackouts where I wouldn't be able to, you know, think through things. And I would just stop. And, and I knew, you know, even in my young mind, I was like, I know that I understand music. I know that I'm I, I'm talented, but like I just can't express myself. And so um, when I realized that one could be a composer, that that was actually a job that a person could have, I thought, okay, this is kind of interesting. And I mean, from there, I actually think um, just the river of what it means to be a composer just swept me up. And, you know, a year after I had decided I wanted to be a composer, I mean, Juilliard offered me one of their spots in their undergrad program. And that moment was like, okay, I guess I'm a composer now. <laughs> and I've been, I've, I've been a composer ever since. So, you know, that was, that was 2001. So whatever, 17 years. Wow. So composition basically chose you. Yes. I love that you mentioned stage fright because that is mm -hmm. something a lot of musicians deal with, but brush under the rug, don't want to talk about mm -hmm. because it's quote unquote embarrassing. Yeah. Do you still have stage fright? I know you do a little bit of performing now. Yeah, I absolutely do still have stage fright. And I think to me, it is very much tied to the piano because that was uh, where I kind of de developed my stage fright. And it, I was just reflecting on this that, um, you know, I don't, I try not to play the piano as much uh, professionally when I'm in the U.S., but in India, I often can't avoid it because you can't just hire an accompanist in India. I mean, if someone needs to play the piano, it has to be me. So I was giving a concert at the um, Indian Embassy in New Delhi, and I actually had a huge memory slip, you know, and this was just a few months ago. And um, so it doesn't go away, and I think it's just that memory of what it feels like to kind of lose control of something um, and I don't think I will ever not be scared to play the piano in front of people um, as much as I've tried as much as I've grown as a musician it's always just that thing that's there that is my demon that I have to battle with you mentioned um, your time in India yeah can you talk about your training there and like the Fulbright yeah the Fulbright was one of the best years of my life. It was just absolutely life-changing because just on a personal level as a human, you know, everywhere I go, and especially in the, the communities I work with, which are, which are largely like Western classical communities, I work with orchestras and choirs, I'm almost always the only 
Indian person and sometimes even the only person of color. And um, so I'm used to being the minority and I'm used to having to just explain so much about myself, even just you know, just just basic things about myself. Um, you know, I always feel like I, I I'm so different from other people, and that has been my identity in the U.S. And going to India and being surrounded, you know, a country of over a billion people that all kind of share my traits, you know, and share my heritage. And it would be very simple things. Um, and they were just like, even, you know, I would be taking the train and I would be looking at the other women on the train and thinking, oh, the makeup that they have on would also look good on me. You know, like just things like that. Right. Th this deep sense of belonging. That was just such a big part of my Fulbright experience. And then musically, what I realized, which I mean, in one way was a, a completely wonderful realization. And in another way, was a completely devastating one was that my teachers just assumed that because I was Indian, I would understand Indian classical music. You know, and they would speak to me in like combination of English and Hindi, they would, if I didn't get something, they were like, oh, I mean, you're definitely going to get this. So just, you know, like I, they had full faith in me. And what I realized when I came back to the States is how the, my very same Indianness actually made people think that maybe I wouldn't understand things, that maybe I wasn't qualified to like teach Sonata Allegro form in a class or that I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't, how could I possibly engage with Beethoven and Bach as someone who looked like me? Like what, you know, these, these kind of subtle, um, uh, this kind of subtle racism, I'll just say it, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not always um, it's not always intentional, but it's just that when people look at me, they're not thinking, oh yeah, that girl is definitely a composer. Yeah, she is, she is what I had in my mind when I was thinking classical composer, you know? Um, so I realized when I when I moved back to the States how much I was always battling that. And um, admittedly, that reverse culture shock of returning is something that I've I've never gotten over. Like I've never gotten over that culture shock. Even though you have such a celebrated career now, do you still deal with this daily? Yes, I still do. Um, because the thing about my career is that I'm now at a point where a lot of people who are working with me often haven't worked with other women of color or other Indian people or, you know, haven't engaged with, you know, people from just the various demographics that I am from. And so I always feel um, a lot of the time I feel that I really have to um teach people how to work with me on that level, you know, and teach people how to be kind to not only me, but the other people who, you know, will uh, come after me or, you know, other people who I will even bring into the situation myself. That's a big burden to carry. It's a big mantle. It is. It's both an immense privilege and like a really tough thing because, you know, in a way, I do feel that I have to be perfect all the time. I do feel like I, I'm not allowed to make certain mistakes because then if, if I make that mistake, then every Indian woman in that situation has made that mistake. Like 100% of Indian women are failing if I'm failing, you know? And that that's really tough. But the other thing that's even more tough is that because of the way things are programmed, a lot of times if I'm um, the only minority on, on a concert, there's not going to be, like, they're not going to get another person who's also a minority, right? Um, and so I feel like in the same way I'm a representative for my race and culture, I'm also maybe taking that same opportunity away from someone else because I'm the person, you know, who's there. So it's really, it's a double-edged sword and I see both sides of it constantly and it's something that I battle with a lot. Wow. <laughs> what a huge burden. That's all I can say. Yeah. Um, I kind of relate to you, though. Yeah. In your commissions today, people often come to you specifically because they are after your blend of Indian and uh, Western classical music. One of my favorite examples is Jula Jule. 
And I would love to talk about that. I know it's based on two folk songs that were passed down from your grandparents. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jula Jule is a piece that is so dear to me um, because I was asked to write this piece, you know, using Indian folk song. And again, you know, my training as uh, in Indian classical music is in classical music, not in folk music. So I just started looking um, just in various places for, you know, what's Indian folk music? How can I engage with this? Almost in this Western intellectual way, thinking like, okay, maybe if I research the Bengali folk song or, you know, Gujarati folk song, um, maybe I'll get to something that's really interesting that I can use musically. And then I thought, wait, wait, folk song is supposed to be passed down kind of through generations of your family and your community and, you know. um, And so I realized that there were these two um, different sides of my family because in America, I'm an Indian person, you know, and that's like a very clear thing to people. In India... I'm like as if my father was from Alabama and my mother was from Hawaii. Like that's what my heritage is. So I'm a really weird uh, combination of things. And so I wanted to kind of bring together these two folk songs from my family. And one, you know, my mom's side of the family admittedly is the musical side. So my grandfather, who I never met, um, we have these beautiful recordings of him singing. And he had this one song that was like this really beautiful song called Akonvina Andarore, which means um, without seeing things remain dark um, or without eyes things remain dark let's quickly play a clip of rena's grandfather singing that song i apologize to listeners in advance there's a little buzz in the background but it is worth it just be aware of that And the other song is totally the opposite. My grandmother, who I knew well, who basically lived with my parents from the time I was born until the time I was 18, um, so she was like my second mother, um, she barely sang anything, but she had this one lullaby she would sing me called Jula Jule. Can you sing that lullaby for us? Yeah, it goes, Jula Jule, Jula Jule, Rina Rani, Jula Jule. And it just means, wow. yeah, it means. It sounds like a CD. <laughs> <laughs> right? oh my God, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> it's it, it just it's simply like the 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 onomatopoeic sound of a swing, jula jule, back and forth, back and forth, and oh. yeah, and so it's really sweet because it was the really the only song my grandmother ever sang to me. And one of the things that I love so much about this piece is, you know, it's gone out into the world. It's been transcribed for so many. It started for violin and piano. Now there are like so many other transcriptions. People play it all over the place. And just this thought that, you know, both my grandparents were very simple people who really thought that no one except the people in their immediate vicinity would ever hear the songs they sang and the music they made. And now, you know, every time I'm at a performance where, you know, there are hundreds of people in the audience, someone is playing this, I still always really tear up and feel um, like, wow, this is something I'm doing to like bring these people that I love kind of further out into the world and in front of more people. So, yeah. reconciling your various cultural backgrounds, American, Indian, and your various trainings, and now you're going to write a piece. How do you decide 
if it's a decision on what to do or is there just is there a decision? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting because I mean, Hindustani music and Western music are so far apart from one another. It's not, you know, there's very little overlap between them in the sense that they address really different things. So Hindustani music has this melody that is so complex and so mellifluous and, you know, it just it has so many kind of nuances to it that because of our Western notation system, it just Western notation doesn't support that. Um, and then it also has um, really kind of complex rhythms and stuff, again, that, that our Western notation system just doesn't know how to support. And the thing about Western music is I think it focuses on things like harmony, counterpoint, on the relationship between things. And so it's not mutually exclusive. Like you can actually put these beautiful Hindustani melodies into Western counterpoint with each other if you kind of just know the traditions well enough. So I think when I'm thinking about how to reconcile things, first of all, I just think about what I'm currently obsessed with in Indian and Western music, you know, and then I just kind of think about where is the point of connection? And the thing is that there are so many possible points of connection because there's no logical point of connection. And so, I mean, for instance, now I'm thinking a lot about, like, I've just been thinking about the Schubert piano trio a lot and the way that Schubert uses harmony and then thinking about this rag called Charukeshi and the way that it works and and I'm just thinking okay how can I bring those two things closer together right and so maybe in another piece I'll be thinking about rhythm or like the way that a certain words sound or something and then just thinking about where is that point of connection and how can I make that in my music. Uh, I want to switch gears for a second, and I really want to talk about that washing machine article <laughs> yes, that you wrote. Yes, yes. Can you tell us why you wrote that article? I know you were comparing like similarities or something like that between Indian and Western traditions. It was a really beautiful article. Yeah. One of the things that's what was so interesting about actually living in India as opposed to, you know, just visiting it is you see the way that Western culture and Western classical music is perceived in India. What ha- the story was that we had this washing machine on our balcony and um, it was uh, it was not I would never be there when the load of laundry was done. And so, you know, I didn't know what sounds it made or anything. But my my roommate who lived in Delhi with me, um, who's also a Fulbrighter, posted on her blog. She's like, oh, this washing machine plays this cute little song when it's done. And I <laughs> I looked at the blog and was like, wait a minute, this is this washing machine is playing uh De Forelle, Schubert De Forelle. It's like dum bum 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 And I was like, this is nuts. Like, how is this this washing machine in India playing like a Western classical piece of music that's like one of my favorite pieces of music? And also this same washing machine had a specific um, setting for washing saris, which are like Indian, you know, Indian clothes. And I was like, there's one machine that plays a piece of Western classical music and you can wash saris with it. Like, how is this even possible? Right. There were just so many uh, of these incongruous meetings like that. You know, the way that people hear. um, What is that piece? Um, uh, 
Schumann um, Traumerei. And for them, it's like, it's from this famous watch ad or something, you know, and that, that's how they know that piece. Or, you know, it's just like kind of like a topic within um, uh, India. So, and I think of the same thing the other way, right? You know, um, where do we hear Indian music? Like we, maybe we, we would hear like chanting in yoga or maybe we would hear, hear it in, like people think of Bollywood as a specific kind of thing. And you know, the way that, you know, you can kind of reverse reduce another culture, but then, you know, what if that, what, what if those things are really um, um, seminal to the culture and what if them are just reductions? So, yeah. That's so interesting. We'll link to this article in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so we talked about you bringing together the musical content of two cultures, mm -hmm. but you also bring in the actual instruments into your music as well, right? And I'm looking at this Love Between Us as an example. Yeah. So this Love Between Us is my oratorio. So I guess if you think of, you know, Handel Messiah, this is my version of that. And so the, the piece, um, which will be performed by the LA Master Chorale in November, is um, a piece for choir, um, Baroque orchestra, essentially, and then um, two Indian soloists, which are sitar and tabla. So if you think of what those two instruments are, sitar is is um, Ravi Shankar is like the most famous Indian classical musician. He played the sitar um, string instrument. Um, and then the tabla is the, the two set of two Indian drums. So um, yeah, th that I wrote this piece for that combination. Um, and so much of it um, on so many levels was about ways to bring people who have different musical languages to the table to be able to really have a conversation with each other while they're both speaking their own language. So for the sitar and tabla player, you know, they don't necessarily need Western training in order to be able to play this piece. I mean, there are a few things that they need to know to be able to cross over. Um, and they're being asked to take one step outside of their tradition in the sense that they can't just show up there and do exactly what they would normally do, but it's really trying to say, if you can take this one step, it will allow us to really see who you are. It will allow us to really value you, you know? Um, and I mean, to me, one of my favorite stories about this oratorio, you know, it was commissioned by um, Yale Scola Cantorum and Juilliard 415, um, so the, the Juilliard's Baroque Orchestra, and we took it on tour to India. And I had specifically within this piece paired the timpani with the tabla, right? So that they would kind of be partners and they'd be able to hear each other. And if the tabla player got lost, he'd be able to, you know, really f follow the timpani player. So at the end of the tour, um, I mean, of course, this entire time during the tour, the um, the timpani and tabla player kept on getting closer and closer because, you know, they were working together and started be being able to have these conversations with one another and comparing best practices and stuff. And so at the end of the tour, um, the uh, tabla player actually gave the timpani player his tablas and was like, you know, I want you to have these. I want you to Skype with me. I want you to learn how to play them. And it was this beautiful, beautiful gesture. And then what was amazing was I was telling the same story, you know, like a, probably a year later um, at Colburn, and I looked out into the audience and the timpani player was literally sitting in the audience. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing that you're here. Like, d d you know, did you keep in touch? And they had kept in touch. And it was, it was just amazing because, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do in my music, right? It doesn't end with the notes. It doesn't end with the performance. It's a chance to really begin to start a conversation and um, a conversation that leads into a friendship and a friendship that leads into a mutual cultural understanding.
you've written a piece for a glee club and that there was a coincidental relationship to the Me Too movement. Can you tell us about that piece? Yes. So um, I think it was around 2015. I wrote a piece called Tutarana. Um, and so what it meant at the time was it was the, the conglomeration of two words. Um, the word tutti in Italian, which is... Um, a very typical word in Western classical music, which means um, together, doing something together all. Um, and um, the word um, tarana, which is actually a form of Hindustani classical music. Um, and it's it's just a very kind of virtuosic form, but it's a solo form. So the idea was that I wanted to write a tarana that was like for an ensemble. like, And that was initially what it was. Can we put you on the spot? Can you sing us a tarana, an example? Thank you so much for that. That is yeah, really cool. That was awesome. That was killer. Beautiful. So so this piece um, is this three-minute rager for choir that's just like, you know, very energetic and very vibrant. And, you know, then years later, I was actually on the way on the train up to give my uh, DMA uh, graduation recital at Yale. And um, the Me Too movement was just exploding. And, of course, you know, so many great things have come out of it. And also, I mean, so many deeply triggering things for so many women have come out of it. And so um, I I was just thinking about it and realizing that this movement was started by this amazing woman named Tarana Burke. Then realizing that the title of my piece essentially also means we are all Tarana. So we are all her. And it just, um, you know, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that, yes, of course, it's true. We are all her. But what a coincidence. Yeah, I know. And it's funny because the title of the piece had never quite sat right with me before. I think I was just messing around with it and thought, okay, you know, whatever. And I would always refer to it as like the woman's choir piece instead of actually calling it Tutarana. And once that happened, I realized, no, 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 that really is the title of it. I think it's important to call it that. Did the Me Too movement resonate with you personally? The Me Too movement was, it resonated so deeply with me that it was almost just painful. You know, it was it was just, it was so hard in so many ways. Um, because, I mean, I'll just come out and say it. Like, I am, I have been sexually harmed, you know, and by being in this field. And it it has taken a lot for me to get to the point where you know, I even have the confidence to be where I am. Um, and, you know, a few years before um, the Me Too movement broke, I had really finally come to terms with, you know, what had happened to me and how difficult it was. And really had started to talk to someone about it and, um, you know, just get some help, you know, because I think we're at a point in the world where people are starting to tell their stories. And as people tell their stories, it kind of allows you to see what's similar about your story, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think most of us who have experienced this assault, especially if it was years ago, which mine certainly was, we feel that um, it's just something that we would just have to bury. And And I just, when it happened, I was like, this is something I will have to bury for the rest of my life. And like, that's, that's just the way it is. And to have it come back up was, like I said, both so painful, but also having it recontextualized and realizing that so many women had also experienced this made me feel that I suddenly had a community and platform to begin to to talk about it. So 
When I first um, started working with this wonderful therapist, um, I really had wanted to write a piece that, that addressed that, and I don't think I was quite ready. And then by the time I felt that I was ready, a couple years later, Me Too had kind of come into the world. And so I actually have an orchestra piece that I wrote for Chicago Sinfonietta that's actually called like, Hashtag Me Too. And I'd wondered, like, you know, should I be writing a piece that has that that hashtag? Is it going to seem dated after a while? And then I thought, no, because the thing is, it's not that my story is special. It's just, it's one of the many stories under that hashtag. And so I really wanted it to just be part of the movement and just to be, be there as my contribution to what the movement is. an emotional reaction to your to your response thank you for sharing that yeah. before we head to the lightning round we have one more question that i am just i've heard that you're very ex- outspoken about your desire to shake up classical music and make it more quote unquote relevant what are some of your issues with the current state of classical music you know I think so many times we're trying to change things at just the cosmetic level, you know? I think maybe we're just trying to put one person in front of an orchestra who looks like something and then say that we've, like, done a really good job. And for me, you know, there's so much on the back end that composers, performers, um, you know, conductors have to deal with to even get to that place. And I think we really need to address it at that level. Like, for instance, you know, it is for any musician to try to work without a contract or try to work and like have to fight your way to get a contract it's really tough as it is but for a person of color who's used to having things taken away from them and to get to a point where they're signing their first big orchestra contract and people are like messing around with them it's really it causes ptsd that is just unknown you know and so i'm saying like things like just being kind in that way things like you know for instance in publicity people of color can always tell when publicity around them is designed to make the majority feel comfortable with them or whether it's designed to make them feel like they really have a place, right? It's very easy for us to tell those things. And so, you know, just asking people to opt into how their own image looks, how they're presented, you know, and not just being used, you know, for instance, you know, around um, International Women's Day this last year, there were so many kind of, I guess, uh, just pictures where there were um, collages of women's faces and saying, okay, we support these women. But, I mean, I didn't even know who the other women were who were on the poster with me and made me just think, okay, are we just, do we just want to see their faces or do we actually want to really engage with their music? And so I'm saying there are a lot of these questions that we need to ask and we we don't need to be pointing fingers at each other. We don't need to try to, like, shoot each other down. We need to ask them together and all admit, you know, where we are with things and how we can um, just support one another. And now it's time for the lightning round questions, where we ask each guest the same six questions every episode. So the first one is, what genre is your music? So I've always had this joke that um, my music is the opposite of Impressionism, where instead of um, using uh, French music to exoticize, Indian music is exoticized within French music, I'm like the other way, where I enter the tradition. So I, I always joked that like I hope one day someone calls calls my music Indepressionism. <laughs> Indepression. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's great. Do you have a performance ritual? 
You know, I don't perform very much, um, but when I do, um, when I'm singing, I always just think this little mantra to myself that is just like, breathe, open your mouth, smile. And I'll just say that before, sometimes before every single phrase. Do you have a composing ritual? You have a composing, oh, so many composing rituals. Okay. But the big one is like, I'm, I always make a cup of tea and I'm always like very particular about the kind of tea, the way that I make the tea, what I'm doing while I make the tea. And that is a thing that's in my family. Like our fam- everyone in my family has their own tea ritual and no one can interrupt anyone else's tea ritual. And, you know, it's, it's a very it's a very specific thing. And one of my dearest mentors, Susan Boddy, um, she she and her family also have tea rituals. And when I spent time with her family and realized that I was like, OK, this this person, we're going to get along. Wow, what kind of tea is it? So, okay, so Harney and Sons tea is like my big, it's just unbelievable. And the Soho blend is like my everything. Free plug. Yep. (laughs) I love Harney and Sons. My favorite's their cinnamon spice. Oh my God, yes. yes. (laughs) Anyway, we'll talk about that later. A modern slash technological tool that's extremely helpful to your practice. Um, so my iPad has been life changing. I literally have like an anniversary of when I got my iPad because it has changed my life. It was July 17th last year. And I just feel like because I like to write by hand, it allows me to actually do that, but then to carry all my sketches everywhere with me, to send sketches out to performers. It's just, I mean, it literally has completely changed my practice. iPad's winning right now. Wow. It's gotten like five votes so far for Game Changer. Wow. Apple is. should sponsor our podcast. Yeah, do it, Apple. Um, a failure that turned out for the best. Um, so I think actually my failure to be a pianist turned out for the best. <laughs> if I if I had still, I can imagine my life now if I had been a pianist. And, you know, I see pianists who are successful and who are working, and I'm just like, I could never do that. There is no, I would have just died trying. So I'm really glad I failed at that. Something besides music that you're obsessed with right now. So the, one of the things that I really love is like hardcore math, like logic, like, you know, I'm just I'm such a math nerd and I don't use it in my music at all. Like they're not related, but I actually love programming Excel. Like that's like really a fun thing for me. So I like do all these these courses in programming Excel and then I find data sets. Actually, I've been like looking at the data set of my own composing habits and trying to kind of form uh, different opinions on like where, um, you know, where where I get the most work done, how my uh, travel schedule uh, influences my composition. And it's not because I actually want to know the answers. It's just because I just love working with data. A piece of art that changed your life. Yeah. Um, so there is this chandelier in the Mandarin Oriental in New York um, on 59th and Broadway. Um, and the chandelier is by this artist named Dale Chihuly. And um, he's this glass artist who was trained in Murano. And what I love about his work is that it's so kind of colorful and vibrant and optimistic and happy. And I think um, as far as modern art goes, like he's just someone who um, I strive to emulate that kind of optimism in my music. Wow, thank you so much, Rena. Yeah, it was great to be here. You can find Rena online at renaesmail.com, on facebook.com slash composer, or on Instagram at renaesmailcomposer. We will have all this info in the show notes for the episode, which you can view directly in your podcast app or at underscore.fm. And you can also join our closed Facebook group for underscore listeners called Underscore Society to learn more and connect with other listeners of the show. But stick around for three more minutes as our episode isn't over yet. We are currently playing Rena Esmail's Nishani as we wave goodbye. Then in the last few minutes, Thomas and I will share our old, new, borrowed blue music picks that we are currently obsessed with. 
All right, let's share our old, new, borrowed blue music picks for this episode. I've got old this week, and it is a song called Call Me a Rainbow by The Mummers. So The Mummers are a Baroque pop collective inspired by marching bands, big bands, and fairgrounds. The group was formed by an indie vocalist, a guitarist, and an orchestral composer. It reminds me a bit of Bjork plus marching band, plus orchestra from a Tim Burton movie. I mean, you just have to hear this song. It's so beautiful. And unfortunately, the Mummers don't really produce work anymore because the orchestral composer in the group passed away. We will see the stars. I have something new, and I'm choosing George Frederick Haas's String Quartet Number no. 9. Haas is an Austrian composer currently on faculty at Columbia University in New York City, and Haas has now an MO of putting pieces in the dark. I'm not talking about, like, kind of dim. I'm talking about can't even see. Pitch black. Yeah, one inch in front of your own face. This recent string quartet number nine is performed by Jack Quartet, and uh, it's a feat. It's 45 minutes long, and uh, to do it all from memory in pitch black is awesome. So we'll put a link to the recording in the show notes. And you also have Borrowed this week. Yes, Borrowed. I'm choosing violinist Patricia Kopachinskaya's Bye Bye Beethoven, which is a stage musical performance that I caught the U.S. premiere of at the Ojai Festival. It was recorded, and we'll link to the video to watch online. And basically, this piece is about the antiquity of classical music programming and the all-too-often museum quality of going to the concert hall. Basically, where I have classical hit tunes performed over and over again, and a complete disregard for just the living quality of music. And without giving any spoilers, I'll just say that Kobachinskaya performs music by Bach, Haydn, Cage, Kurtog, Ives, and Beethoven in a way which you've never seen or heard before, with costume changes and dramatic staging, and in the end, I was left completely speechless. We'll link the concert and you can check it out for yourself. Tell us what your favorite part of it was. You just have to give a spoiler. Favorite part of it was the Beethoven being performed in a giant poofy dress. The dress was made out of, I'll call it like a giant piece of trash cloth. So you make the statement of what that means to yourself. You mm-hmm. know? And also another, uh, a Haydn symphony was performed backwards. backwards. So you definitely want to check out this recording. I have Blue this week and my pick is a song called Aquarium by No Such Thing who is a Korean-American record producer who lives in Los Angeles. Nosaj is spelled N-O-S-A-J, and it's just Jason spelled backwards because his name is Jason Chung. So No Such Thing has produced tracks for Kendrick Lamar, Kid Cudi, Chance the Rapper, and so many other artists. This song, Aquarium, actually came out in 2006, but then Kid Cudi sampled it in 2008 in a song called Man on the Moon. Chrysanthi has the best blue picks. She really does. (laughs) We will list and link all of these things in the show notes if you want to take a listen for yourself. And that does it for today's episode of Underscore, where we explore the innovative music of artists who create beyond the boundaries of classical. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Underscore FM. Follow our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Underscore FM. And even join our closed Facebook group for listeners like you. 
Once again, that special Facebook group is called Underscore Society, and it's a fun place to connect with other open-minded, curious music lovers. If you're still listening to this, we have a tiny favor to ask that would mean the world to us. Please, pretty please, share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it. We spread mostly through word of mouth, and seriously, every single new listener, subscriber, and episode download makes a tangible difference. Thank you. It really does. Once again, you've been listening to Underscore. I'm Chrysanthi Tan. I'm Thomas Kotcheff. And, and we'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.